0: to see you. I'm going to introduce you babes so that the world knows who I'm talking to. Hey everyone, it's Leomi Anderson and of course you're listening to my podcast, Role Model. Today I am joined by an absolute diamond. First and foremost, she's a wonderful human being, literally one of the nicest people that I have ever met. She's a fellow original face of Fenty Beauty a film producer, and an amazing friend to me. It's my girl, Halima Aiden. We talk about growing up at Kakuma, a refugee camp in Kenya, then moving to USA.
1: When well, we left Kakuma refugee camp, we landed in a place called uh, St. Louis, Missouri, and they put us in the ghetto. In the ghetto, too.
0: We go in on the ugly side of modeling.
1: You mean to tell me you couldn't afford to just do a curtains, give these girls and boys privacy to change? Like, I was shocked because it kind of cheapened the industry for me. I'm not going to lie.
0: And we discuss that well-publicized exit from the modeling industry while she was at the peak of her career. Some
1: needs to show the fashion industry a taste of their own medicine. Like, thank you for my coins. I bought a home, but peace out. I'm moving on to bigger and better things.
0: This is Halima Aiden
1: Hi baby Hi (laughs) Yomi
0: Hey girl I am so happy To have you on Role Model We have to catch up And you already know Like we have a lot To talk about I've been messaging you And voice noting you And telling you How much I support Everything that you've been doing And I'm so glad That you agreed To come on my podcast Another day is here And you're ready for it What to wear? Check Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check Planning for what's next And how to save for it? That's where Bank of America Can help Let's take it back. You are Somali, but you grew up in a refugee camp in Kenya called Kakuma. Can you just talk to me about the biggest culture shocks you had when you moved to Minnesota when you were six?
1: When we left Kakuma refugee camp, we landed in a place called uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And they put us in the ghetto. In the ghetto, (laughs) (laughs) It was my first time literally it was my first time hearing gunshots you know the streets were very impoverished like the school didn't even have an ESL program and I remember crying to my mom saying this is the real refugee camp take me home I want to go back to Kakuma
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm so dead I'm so dead oh my god
1: New York you you visited New York many many times and you know sometimes depending on which street you're on it's it's literally a refugee camp, you know? And I I Mm -hmm. don't say that just to say that, but I think what's so sad is like, you know, people don't realize we have refugees in America, but we don't call them refugees. We just call them the homeless population and they're Mm -hmm. everywhere.
0: Yeah, displaced people are everywhere. And in LA as well, it's really, it's gotten so much worse here as well. And so I can't even imagine like thinking that I'm about to turn (laughs) up in some amazing like mansion this that so when did you make it to minnesota then if you were first in st louis
1: so my mom after like seven months realizing that you know we weren't being educated the school was very impoverished they didn't have an esl program and an english immersion program for children or people who you know english isn't their first language so they're learning And so to not have that kind of program and just to go to school every day, sit and not learn a single thing. My mom, after seven months, Mm. she moved the entire family to St. Cloud, Minnesota. And we were among the very first Somali uh, families. And so that with that came like Mm. its own set of unique challenges and like fitting in and, you know, assimilating because that's what we thought we had to do.
0: How did you kind of navigate that being in a completely new country and not knowing the language, um, who would you say was your biggest support and how did you adapt?
1: You know, I have to give Minnesota props and I'm so loyal to the state because in a lot of ways, they they saved our lives. You know, they took us in. It was my home away from home. I always consider Kakuma to be my first home, my forever home. But Minnesota, it gave me a sense of community. Um, We were met with teachers who provided us with ESL, ELL, who would stay back and, you know, tutor me, pull me out of recess to do homework because they knew, like, my mom would show up to the elementary school every single day, but they understood she doesn't speak the language. She's illiterate, so she can't help me at home with the homework. So they put it, made the effort to, you know, be my second parents. And so that's why even today, like, uh, you know, when modeling came I was like, I'm not moving to New York, to Milan, to no fashion community. I am staying right here in Minnesota, the state that has given my family and I so much. And it is a liberal state. So a lot of, you know, our taxpayer hard earned money goes towards these programs, goes towards paying our teachers, goes towards, you know, our public schools. So it's my relationship with Minnesota, it's deep. It's like, I'm not going nowhere. This is my forever home.
0: Oh, see, that's so amazing. And it's nice to hear that kind of story about, you know, actually having support from, you know, immigrating from another country, because I feel like there's not, we don't get to hear that many positive stories. So that really does like warm my heart. Would you say that traveling and being an immigrant kind of prepared you for the world of modeling in a way?
1: Yeah, I think even my childhood, even in that refugee camp in Kenya, you know, my first headshot, I was taken in the camp, you know, uh, they would come sometimes bring a company, celebrities to come visit, take photos. And so even in my childhood, I feel like it prepped me for my modeling career. And then which, you know, later on, like as I was reflecting, I was like, oh my God, since day one, like literally, it's kind of dehumanizing to have a photo taken of you and then be used as an object, basically, and then move on to the next kid. And kind of modeling for me was kind of like that too, where it's just image, 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 photo, 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 onto the next. But I think being an immigrant definitely helped me be more versatile. And I was able, like, I'm good with change because all my life, like, I I would get comfortable in one situation, one environment. Like Kakuma, for example, I had so many friends. Fun fact, supermodel Adut and I were born in Kakuma refugee camp.
0: Oh, okay.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and so Kakuma babies were resilient, you know? And it's funny because her family went to Australia, my family went to America. And that was the lottery ticket because most refugees like 1% of refugees actually get resettled to a country like America or Australia or the UK. The majority end up staying in these refugee camps.
0: Really? Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. That's so crazy. Well, I'm glad that you ended up in America because I wouldn't have met you if you didn't. Oh yes! <laughs> <laughs> Let's fast <laughs> forward because I actually remember the very first time that I saw your picture and it was when you were going viral about being the first hijabi to enter Miss Man- Minnesota, Like, I always follow these sort of things. I always need to know, like, what's up? Who the new girls are? You know me. Like, I've, I'm, I love it. I love knowing what's going on. And I remember seeing your picture and it was a moment. Can you explain to me what it was like when you were going through that? And what was your thought process behind joining this competition?
1: I was my town's, probably the state of Minnesota's first Muslim homecoming queen. And so I remember like after graduating, I was like, my mom broke that crown in half.
0: (laughs) Tell me about this. Why did she do that? Tell me.
1: Girl, she said, you are focusing too much on friends. I don't know what this popularity business is, but I sent you to school to get an education. So she took that plastic crown, broke it in half, and she said, see, it's nothing. Now go go read a book. I'm
0: done. And so
1: <laughs> to get back at her, I remember it was two things. It was, I wanted to send a message to girls, you know, from my high school to to teach them that they could still participate in soccer and sports and, you know, all these swimming even and still wear a uniform that they're comfortable with and still get to participate without changing who they are. And I also wanted to get back at my mom because sis broke my crown and I needed to replace it. You, know? <laughs> you so need I to get like, a bigger one. Minnesota. I need to get a bigger one. <laughs> and so that was kind of like my thinking naively, you know, at 18 years old, I was like, I'm going to get back at my mom. But I'm African. I can't talk back yes. to my mom. I can't say, hey, you hurt my feelings when you broke that crown. I actually worked hard. To be liked by all my friends and you know to put myself out there and it's a huge deal that the my student body picked me and and you just kind of ruined something that was very special like i can't have that kind of conversation with the woman who raised me sacrificed everything to raise us in some of the world's toughest environments like you know my mom is like the one thing i don't play about so i was like i gotta get back at her in a way that she doesn't even know I am getting back Mm -hmm. at her.
0: See, that's why sometimes as parents yeah, you had to just let the, your kids do their own thing because the way that we figure out creative ways to get back, of the, back at them, it's like, look, she launched a whole career, babes, literally.
1: If my mom didn't break the crown, I probably wouldn't have competed for Miss Minnesota USA. Well,
0: thanks mom for breaking that crown because you don't even know the butterfly <laughs> effects that you started off. How did it feel for you entering that competition?
1: I had a lot of butterflies because I was like, oh my goodness because A, like my mom did fully approve. She's like, why are you competing in this kind of, you know, pageant? And I was like, well, that's my message. You know, the platform is all about being confidently beautiful. And I don't think, you know, I think it'd be a disservice that they don't have somebody who's look who looks like me, who dresses more modestly on that stage. And I feel like young girls in our community could really, you know, benefit from somebody like me going out and trying something so out of the sphere of things that you see hijabis participating in. And, you know, like even beauty, like I've never gotten to experience Muslim women who wear the hijab being celebrated in the beauty industry. You know, I couldn't flip through a magazine and see somebody who looked like me. There was no hijabi Muslim on, you know, TV and in commercials and, you know, on billboards and definitely not in the beauty industry. So for me, that was like my little, like, I can't change the world, but I could, you know, send a positive message at the local level and just give this pageant a try. And I'm so grateful I did because the very next day, that's when Rihanna's team reached out about shooting for Fenty Beauty. That's when I got to meet you in LA, along with Slick Woods, Ducky Thought. And I just remember like, I don't know about what your first photo shoot was, but for me, I was like, oh my God, look at, a all these beautiful women of color, like from all different walks of life, and immediately I was like, okay, this industry it, it is for me, and that was like, I'm so grateful that that was my first experience because yeah. had it been had it been some of the other stuff I've done, it would have been very intimidating because I have been on photo shoots and on the runway where I was literally the only one, and it's not a comfortable feeling because you're like, wait a minute, I I don't know if I fit exactly in here.
0: and oh honestly. What a dream job to walk onto the set of for your first job, because I don't even remember my first shoots, like my first test shoots anyways, I just looked like a hot mess. The (laughs) makeup was probably just absolutely terrible, but my first job job, I don't exactly remember, but I know for a fact that I was walking into a space where like, I really was the only black person period. So shout out to Rihanna, obviously, and the Fenty team for, you know, being so inclusive, because people don't realize how, that it affects us. It it does affect us when we walk into a space and we're the only ones of color. It does affect us when we feel that we are a minority and that we are so different and we get treated differently. And as much as people don't You know, they don't try necessarily always to treat us differently. Some people, it's subconscious. They can't help it. And yeah, so I'm so thankful to Rihanna and the team as well for having us and making us feel good about ourselves. And boy, I'm glad that she made you feel that the industry was roses and all that because afterwards everything (laughs) went a little bit... You come on now, because you signed with IMG. Tell me what you first thought it was going to be like.
1: Okay, first of all, major, major shout out to Ivan Bart. He's the president of IMG Models. And I can genuinely say, like, that first meeting with my agency, it was four hours long. My agents actually listened to me, got to know me. It wasn't just like, hey, we're signing a hijabi, like, let's go. They were like, what? contractually too. Like, I, I don't know about you, Leomi, if you ever had to include something in, in some of your contracts. But for me, I had to include a hijab clause saying that, A, no man is going to be touching me nor styling me. Uh, I would always travel with a female companion for my team. And basically, I would always be provided a little black box to change in. Because, you know, I was shook when I first saw how the industry works like that was something that never sat well with me. The fact that you have these young women and men having to dress in front of the public, in front of media personnel. I get it. It's busy. It's boom, 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 boom. But you mean to tell me you couldn't afford to just do a curtains, give these girls and boys privacy to change? Mm-hmm. Like I was shocked because it kind of cheapened the industry. Oh, purpose, yeah. I'm not going to lie. I was like. I could go to JCPenney. I could go to Walmart and there's private <laughs> bathrooms with each gender. Like, you know what I'm saying? It, it really did kind of ruin a little bit of the, yeah, it just cheapened the industry for me.
0: I know exactly what you mean in regards to like you feeling like the industry is cheap. It did cheapen industry because you feel like, am I not even worth a piece of curtain people to cover my private? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And like me, I am somebody, maybe it's like the Minnesotan in me. Maybe it's just the Somali in me. Like, I don't know what it is, but the way I was brought up, it's like, you, you can't give me special treatment. And in a way, like something that always made me feel extremely guilty was the fact that I would have, I was afforded my private dressing space And then I would have to literally see so many girls and a couple of times, actually, some of the models did ask me, hey, can I use your dressing room? I was like, of course, go ahead, sis. You know, go ahead. You know, but then I was just like, why am I the only one I get? I wrote it into the contracts, but this should just be a given. It should be for all of us. It shouldn't just be for me.
0: But I feel like that is also down to agents because when you first sign up, you trust your agents, your family, trust your agents to, you know, do the best for you and put you first. And of course, in the beginning they act like that. I don't know. Obviously, I'm speaking on my personal experiences as well, because as you said, you had a team that listened to your concerns and, you know, made it contractual that you were treated with, you know, even like, with basic necessities, basically. Whereas when we first signed, if anything, from the jump. They kind of trick us because even the contracts that we sign to become models in the first place, they are worded in a way that is actually against the model. So, yeah, I feel you. And I'm so happy that um, it's actually so nice to hear, actually, that they took the time to to write that into your contracts and stuff, because I've I've never heard of that before. But again, it makes sense, though, because they wanted to be careful and they wanted to make sure that they, you know, that you felt comfortable and felt respected, which I, I think is really, really great. Obviously, you have shot so many amazing um, editorials, and you got to be that representation that uh, you didn't get to see growing up from Vogue Arabia, Allure, British Vogue. Tell me how your community responded. Tell me how you felt in those moments being able to represent the hijabi community, represent your religion, represent you know your culture. It
1: was it was a dream come true. At the time, I was like, I cannot believe. In for example, like when I shot British Vogue. I didn't realize on that set how big of a deal it is. But then when you look at the fact that that was the first time in British Vogue's 102 year history, that they featured somebody who looks like me, is wearing a hijab, a Muslim woman on the cover. Like that to me was like I, when, you know, my agents told me I was blown away, you know, just blown away and just so so grateful for the opportunity. So grateful to Edward Enningfell um, for allowing me to have that kind of opportunity. But at the same time, I think towards the end of my career, the editorial, piece aspect was actually one of the reasons why I quit modeling because the first two years of my career I would come to set with hijabs with all these like you know extra leggings turtlenecks of all different shades and fabrics all these hijabs different fabrics I would show up with my little suitcase the first two years and it was actually the hijabs I brought from home even for Fenty Beauty the black hijab I wore is the one that I brought to set and so Then, as my editorial work progressed, the team on set, like I got comfortable allowing them to dress me, and it's kind of like I was listening to your conversation with Winnie Leomi, and when you guys were talking about the fact that you know, I think Winnie was like, "I've lived with my hair, like I know spraying water on it is not gonna be it, and like I, how are you gonna tell me about my own hair? You know, when you guys were having that conversation, I." Deadass had the same exact thing. And it's like, how does somebody who's never worn a hijab? style the hijab all of a sudden they're very adamant that they want to style my hijab to look a certain way and that's when I got into that you know gray area of like okay this isn't this can no longer be represented as a hijab because the average Muslim woman who wears a hijab would never you will never catch her looking like that mm. and I get it fashion they always say it's like oh creative 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 yeah, but- I get it but at the same time you're talking about somebody's religious garment it's deeper than yes. just putting Gucci pants, like literally I had Gucci pants on my head as a hijab, jeans on my head as a hijab. And they thought like the bigger the hair, the better it is or whatever. And same thing, like they wanted my hijab to be out of this world. I have like this, you know, like it's it's bittersweet because you know, my editorial work, I was so proud of it and I still am, but it also was that thing that pushed me away from the hijab I used to wear, the hijab that I came into the industry wearing. And so it's bittersweet for me.
0: Did you feel a responsibility to, you know, the young hijabi models who are gonna follow in your footsteps to to take a stand on this?
1: Girl, let me tell you, another big reason why I decided it was time to bow out. Was The fact that I really thought I was so naive. I thought the the girls that were going to follow me, follow my footsteps into the industry. I honestly, Leomi thought that they were going to be treated with the same respect and dignity that I was treated with. I thought they would be afforded a private dressing space. Nope. I was on set one time and it was two of us hijabis. And so they gave me my private dressing room and then I overheard the other Somali hijabi girl on set asked where her dressing space would be and they told her to go find a bathroom.
0: I'm not surprised.
1: Why? You know, you, you knew you were going to have two hijabis on set to shoot this. Why would you give one a private dressing space and tell the other who was younger than mm. me to go find a bathroom? Like that never sat well with me. You know, like the fact that we weren't being treated equally, like, no. It's
0: crazy because what I thought when I was younger was true. When I was being mistreated, when I was growing up and you know growing up as a model and I was like 17 18 19 I used to literally think this treatment's only going to stop if I become successful as a model like I literally felt like this is just normal every black model just gets treated like this until you make it big and as much as it's so sad that I had that mentality it kind of is true though and it is true in the modeling industry that only once people feel that you're established feel that you have like some weight on your name do they actually treat you with respect and I think it's just so wrong because models aren't asking for lot like you were asking for separate changing spaces for religious purposes but to them that is a perk and that's not fair do you get it like that's not fair they see basic human rights as a a perk as something that we should be grateful to have i can't believe that but at the same token yes i can and so when these sort of situations happened like how how did you deal with it
1: (laughs) you you know me leomi you know i don't stand for that i gave her my dressing room You know, I quick changed, got out, and I was like, go change. And she did, you know, we ended up sharing. But it just, I think part of the problem is like when you don't speak up. And I think until the people who've made it, like that's why for me, I was just like, A, I have nothing to lose. I'm 23 years old. I was fine before fashion and I will continue to be just fine post-fashion. But I think for me, I just, I hope that, girls, especially the young models that are like following into my footsteps, I hope that they recognize like if I was able to speak up, like I sacrificed my career so that you could feel comfortable to say, hey, I need a private dressing space. You know what I'm saying? Like, I hope it didn't go to waste. And I hope, you know, like girls actually know that they can speak up. And I think it's also our responsibility, you know, to the girls who have worked in the industry for years, have accomplished so much we need to also speak up and say, this isn't right. This, you know, should be changed. And I think until, like, more girls who are established come out and, and speak up and stand up, I feel like, you know, because it's intimidating. It I'm glad I came from Minnesota. My mom was like, make it as hard as you can for them. Yes. <laughs> she was like, you're not moving to New York. You're not doing this and this. And I thought, I thought that was going to be, like, a done deal. You know what I'm saying? When I was first starting out, I was five, five and a half with braces straight out of high school. Girl, I was a nobody. (laughs) And I still walked into that agency and I was like, these are my criteria. These are my, you know, like requirements. You want to work with me? Here are my conditions. And I feel like more girls need to know that they can stand up and, you know, and I don't like the fact that the modeling industry is like, we want you to be seen, but not heard. So
0: tell me, why did you choose to speak about it so publicly? Why did you think that it was, you know, the right move to to basically end your career so publicly? What was your thought process behind that? Because I remember your stories were going, flip, flip, flip. I said, let me just, let me get into it. I was reading everything. <laughs> I was reading everything. Talk to me about that day <laughs> where you were like, you know, what was the breaking point actually? What inspired you that day to be like, I'm done?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's the industry spot because contracts and all like contractual, all that stuff is like zip zip. There's nothing on it. And even when I was first signing, I was like, uh, mm-hmm. like what, what is a modeling contract look like? What's normal? What's not At like all. that information is just not accessible on the internet. But what is accessible on the internet is lots of videos about Illuminati and how they get you. And I was like, oh, heck no. If I'm going out, I'm going out publicly. (laughs) Nobody's going to get me behind the scenes. (laughs) So I was honestly like, okay, if, we, if we're if we doing this, if we're doing this, we're doing it publicly.
0: Yeah, you needed to leave a, a, a real public trail. Like in the event of anything, guys, you know who did this shit to me,
1: okay? That was my insurance policy. Are you kidding me? My Instagram stories, that was my insurance policy. And I honestly, like, they don't tell you anything. Like, how do you properly quit? They don't tell you
0: anything. That's why I did an, an Instagram TV video not too long ago. And I did a bit about contracts saying, read your contracts, get your own lawyer. Even if even if you haven't got money, even if you're, if you're from a working class family, don't believe for a second that these people have written this contract to benefit you. They've written it so that you can't leave unless they want you to leave. I know girls who've been sued. I know agencies I've been with who are there laughing about the fact that they're suing young girls for trying to move agencies but I'm like but I swear that you guys haven't gotten her any work in six months so why would she stay like they do evil stuff to girls at evil it's evil
1: sometimes and they are and honestly th- you asked me what the breaking point was and it was an analysis mm. that I an observation that I noticed I was like you know what why is it that the fashion industry is the only industry in the entire world where women out earn the men? And then I had to think about that. I was like, what age group do they target? And it's like models as young Mm -hmm. as 14, 12. And then by the time you're 24, supposedly, unless you've made it and you're established and you have the Mm -hmm. following, you know what I'm saying? Then you're fine. But for the most part, it's like 12 to like uh, 24 is like the average age range for most models. From what I observed, this is an industry that churns, churns through beautiful young men and women. Use them, abuse them, and then recycle, and then just throw them away for not the newer recycled. model.
0: Yep, not even recycled, babe. You get thrown in the landfill,
1: and then and then replaced with the newer model. So I was like, somebody needs to, somebody needs to show the fashion industry a taste of their own medicine. Like, thank you for my coins. I bought a home, but peace out. I'm moving on to bigger and better things.
0: So how did your mom react when you finally dipped out? Talk to me about what was going on in your household.
1: Child, they were all so worried. My mom's like, if you don't stop posting, <laughs> she would take my phone away and then I would get it back. <laughs> Go on a couple more rounds. And she would take my phone, then I would get it back. And she was so worried. She's like, are you okay? Everybody was so worried. Cause I feel like for me, I'm somebody who's very headstrong. I It, it takes me a long time to make A decision but once I make that final choice like there's no stopping me you know and so my decision to quit modeling like it didn't happen overnight it was like things that accumulated over the last four years that brought me to this choice and the pandemic was like the final seal like the fact that I got to be home because you know you're right when, when you're busy going from state to state country to country. You're not, you don't have enough time. And, and fashion never sleeps. Like there was yeah. always an event to go to, a red carpet uh It's like a runway, hamster wheel. And You're
0: just running around I, on a hamster wheel and you don't even know how to jump off sometimes, yeah. You said that your family and your friends, they were worried at the in the beginning, but since then, what has been the response from your community? Because do you feel that your community felt the same way that you felt inside, that you were changing? Yeah, so talk to yeah. me about that.
1: You know, I honestly, I had to brace myself for the worst you know because when you take it so publicly and I put my phone on do not disturb because you know people are in your ear like don't do this and I had people on my team like if you quit they made me feel like if I were to quit because it's not the first time Mm. that I thought about taking a step back I actually my second year I was like I don't Mm. know if this is me but I had so much pressure and you're supporting people like literally it's not just it's not just your career it's also their livelihood and so I had like people in my ear always talking me out of it, always like downplaying playing some of my concerns. And so I had to brace myself for the worst. So that was I'm gonna lose a bunch of followers. I'm gonna not work another day in my life. Like whatever, you know. I came from a housekeeping background. I was like, I know Saint Cloud Hospital would still <laughs> want me. <laughs> I was, I was employee of the month many times. It's okay. And so I had to brace myself for the absolute worst. And what happened to my surprise was actually the mm. opposite. You know, I gained 200,000 followers overnight. I made my announcement on Thanksgiving, you know, and that same night at 3 a.m., that's when I started going on my little, because I was thinking about it. I was mm. so nervous. I was like, how do I, How do, where do I start? I was like, where do I even begin And I started with my childhood photos, how my hijab used to look when I was younger. And then it was my hijab story. And honestly, I didn't even know that I was gonna quit fully, but I was just reflecting. I was reflecting, I was going, as I was posting, I was like having all these emotions coming back up. I was just like, what do you have to lose? And that's when I realized, like, I have nothing to lose, but everything to gain. And when respect is no longer being served at the table, you got to leave. You know, you have to have self-respect. For me, I was just like, it's now or never. So I made my post and the New York Times picked it up. Guardian picked it up. Some of the world's biggest. Yeah. BBC picked it up. And it was like, I was so shocked at the support and people understood exactly what I was saying. And I feel like I gained respect from my mom you know, from my community here in Minnesota that, you know, there's some things that are not on sale and my values, my core beliefs, like you can't buy me.
0: Recently, you've kind of stopped working with a particular charity and I wanted to speak to you a little bit about, you know, charities and NGOs. Like talk to me about your initial perception of working with them versus how you feel about them now.
1: Yeah, when I was younger, like First of all, nobody explains anything to child refugees. It's like they use us as props. And so I remember many times being ripped from my mother's arm, placed with a bunch of other little kids, taking photographs, you know, of of me. Never did my mother ever get to sign a release form. Parent permission was never needed. It's like, th- what type of like message is that? You know, like you and your child are objects for us to place take photographs of. Never did she receive a copy of any of those images. I don't have any childhood photos, even though I was photographed at least a hundred times. Yeah. (laughs) And so to not have a single image is it's very heartbreaking. And I thought that was at the bottom tier because I saw the corruption on the very, very bottom tier. And my mistake was thinking things were a lot different at the top. And if I just work hard, that's where you can make real change. And so to get to that point where You know, as a child, I would have celebrities come and take photographs with us. We didn't know who they were, but we knew they were a big deal. Mm -hmm. To then grow up and be that person, I just was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I accomplished one of my biggest dreams. Mm. And then to go on these trips, and I've done several trips where I got to see how things, you know. And it reminded me of my childhood, but this time, like, when I went back to Kenya where I was born... I asked the kids, I was like, hey, are they still, you know, are things still being done the way they're being done? Meaning the dance moves. So anytime a visiting celebrity would come or UNICEF would come, they would always perform. The refugee children and yeah. you know, would perform. And so that was something that never sat well with me as a child. And so I was like, are they still making you guys dance for visiting celebrities? And they were like, yes, but this time we're not dancing for a celebrity. This time we're dancing for you. Uh. And that, that left such a big (laughs) dent in my heart. And I was guilt ridden, like for months, I was like so, so like upset about the fact that I became what I hated the most as a child, Mm -hmm. you know? I think there's ways to support communities directly or, you know, supporting grassroots organizations um, I think that's the way to go. And from here on out, I'm not saying, hey, I'm done doing activism. I'm done. Like, I'm not saying that. I'm saying I'm going to be more intentional yes. with the organizations that I work with. But another thing I think needs to change is we need to somehow implement a law that says you cannot photograph a minor, a child, yeah. without the permission of a parent. Yeah. You know, and and if they don't have parents, OK, that's an orphan. Why are you photographing the child that is at their most vulnerable Vulnerable. stage of their life? You know, why? Why don't you photograph the books that you bought, the the schools that you built, yep. the water wells? The We want to see that. Okay? Yep. We've seen crying children time and time again. We know it's what trauma, a trauma child- Yeah, trauma poor Yes, we know. And it's always them African babies, Asian babies. You know, yep. like in America, I can't take a picture. I can't go to an elementary school and take a picture of a child and post it anywhere. I can't do that. Because yep. America, we have laws- that protect our children. You know, it's amazing that the same celebrities that fight so hard to protect their child's image from mm-hmm. paparazzi photos, they're the first to run after a scandal. That's another thing I, I started noticing. After a scandal, They'll these be celebrities Straight to these love, charities. Yep. Let me run to Africa. Let me go to Tanzania. <laughs> Let me go to Kenya. I got to take a picture with them African babies. <laughs> Give me the African babies. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, child, let me stop. I'm getting heated.
0: (laughs) This is insane. When I read this, I was like, hold the phone. You have just executive produced a film called I Am You, which tells the story of a refugee's journey. How did that come about? And what was it like being behind the camera?
1: Girl, behind the camera is where it's at. Like That is (laughs) true power. (laughs) But I... I actually got to work with Sonia Nasri Kol, who is the film's uh creator. And she's a woman, Afghanistan woman, and she traveled to all five countries: Greece, Turkey, Afghanistan, Iran, and Germany. So mm-hmm. five countries she traveled to, and she was in charge of a crew of a hundred men, like wow. g- leading them. And so this is like the true true life story of what refugees have to go through to find safety and I think it's just I will continue to talk about the refugee crisis you know I was a child refugee until I'm blue in the face but you know to have a visual tool like a film to actually show people I think it's going to invoke empathy and it's again like people getting to realize like nobody no parent would ever put their child on a boat to ship them somewhere if it was not a matter of life or death
0: A hundred percent. Did you learn anything about yourself working on the film that you didn't know before? Or, you know, did it open your eyes and evoke kind of any memories that you'd forgotten?
1: It did, it was very emotional Mm -hmm. because it brought back, but you know, I was born in Kakuma and so it was 66% women and children. So I never got to experience what it was like to flee war. Mm -hmm. You know, that was my mom's story, fleeing the Somali civil war. So it made me have empathy for her journey and what she had to go through.
0: What advice would you give your 17-year-old self?
1: Well, I guess it works, so why not? Um, don't change yourself, change the game.
0: I flippin' love that. You need to get these slogans on a t-shirt, mate. I swear to you. But sadly, this is all that we have time for today. But thank you so much for coming on Role Model. You know that you're one of my biggest inspirations and one of my truest friends that I've met in the industry. So thank you for sharing your words with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Leomi. The pleasure was all mine, sis.
0: Role Model is a something else production produced by Harriet Wells. Additional production from Steve Ackerman. The executive producers are Claire Solon and Chris Skinner. Special thanks goes to Ellen McLeod, Charlotte Tahira, Camilla Baden, Jesse Donnelly, Emma Lansden, and Mark Rivers. The sound engineer was Gulliver Tickle. Next time on Role Model. At the same time, when I got into sport, like I just excelled and I was gifted with the abilities and it was something that I just knew, like this was for me, like this was, this was my avenue. This is what, no matter what sport it was, it was basketball, baseball, football, soccer or football as you call it. Football, you know, yeah. You know I mean? <laughs> like it. no matter what sport it
1: was, I could have, I could have done any one of those at the highest level.